As Matt said, we begin a new series today in the letter to the Romans. I've never preached the book of Romans before. And I've, uh, I've been apprehensive, not because, not because I'm hesitant in the sense of loving other books better, but the apprehension is how can we do this justice? I always tremble a little bit when either somebody says or even hear myself saying, this may be the greatest book in the Bible or the greatest text of scripture or because even last week we were looking at all scriptures inspired by God, it's breathed out and it's all profitable. But there is something about this book that is unique. And even as we begin today, I've just gone round and round. How do we start it? How far do I go? I mean, do we do a flyover at you know, 35,000 feet? Do we just land the plane and say, no, we're gonna walk word by word, verse by th- verse through this text? That's probably not the best option because I think I would preach 10 years and, and that might actually wear some of us out, including me. But to fly over it at 36,000 feet, you know, just in a few messages would not do it, it, it justice by any means. So I don't really know. I have this first message in hand, and from here, we'll just see how the Lord directs. But I want to encourage you week by week to actually include reading Romans as part of your daily reading, even if it's just a few verses here and there. Read it and digest it and and try to immerse your heart in it as we work through this together. Because this may be the plainest and most comprehensive explanation of the gospel in all of scripture. I think that's part of the reason many of us would say it's my favorite book of the Bible. It is certainly among mine. And I I won't be forced to choose one even if you ask me. Uh, At this very moment, Romans is my favorite, but I've said that about Ephesians and Genesis and Jonah and uh, even Ecclesiastes. So my prayer is that as we begin this study together, God would just open our hearts to his word because these words are life. They are designed to give life, to strengthen and nurture and encourage life. And apart from this text, again, where we were looking at some things from the scriptures last week, you, you don't really have life apart from God's word. And there's a lot that this world offers to us that feels like a substitute or feels like a legitimate alternative, but at the end of it all, when all is said and done, only your personal relationship with Jesus Christ matters and only a life that has been nourished up and strengthened in the word, a soul that has been fed in God's word is a soul that will endure. Now I'd like to read the first 16 verses and so I'm gonna ask you to follow along please with me, Romans 1, and you listen as I read the first 16 verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray together. 
Father, as we begin this study of this letter to the Romans, we are surrendering our wills to yours. We are submitting our minds to yours. We bring our faith. Some would say it is weakened to the point where I am just not sure any longer. Others would say my faith feels relatively strong, but it's in need of strength. And some would say faith. I'm not sure I have any faith. All that we are, we bring to you at this moment, and we ask that you, the great God of the universe, would speak to us through this word by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, just as you have promised, that you would cause this word to saturate our souls in the same way that the rain and snow saturate the earth and cause it to bring forth, to sprout, to bud, and to yield a harvest. Oh, Lord God, let this powerful word about Christ concerning his life and death and resurrection, bring forth an, an abundant harvest in our hearts. Let us experience that powerful transformation that the Apostle Paul underwent personally, that so many of those dear people of the first century from all walks of life, from all ethnicities, had experienced. For the gospel is, in fact, the achieving power of God unto salvation. So let us know it. Let us see it. Let us be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a simple approach this morning to the text before us really could be summarized under two particular questions. One, who is Paul? And number two, what is the gospel? We're gonna stick with the text this morning and take a look at what Paul says about himself and look at verse one with me and you will notice immediately that he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. Now there's some English versions that would actually use the, the term bond slave and I use that intentionally because we need to be jarred just a little bit by this terminology that Paul would use because he's not speaking of himself as a, a servant who holds a, a high position and a high rank in the household of God, but he actually uses a term that was used for the common slave, if you will. And Paul says, I'm a person who is legally owned by someone else. My entire livelihood and purpose has been determined by another. Paul is a bond slave of Christ Jesus. Then he says in the second place, I'm called to be an apostle. Now the term apostle could be capitalized in one sense because he's in a special classification of apostles. These are the ones who had seen the risen Christ, who had been commissioned and called by him personally, and though Paul says in another place, I was one born out of time. He wasn't a part of the original 12 who lived those three years with Jesus prior to his, his crucifixion and resurrection. No, there's an appearance that Christ made to him personally. It's recorded in Acts 9, and so that appearance is what, and, and that call of Christ is what pushes Paul into the capital A category of apostle, if you put it that way. But the term apostle is used in other places in the New Testament to refer to those who are simply sent out. And again, they're sent out by Christ. So here he is, a bond slave or bond servant, one whose, whose entire will is owned by another, Jesus, whose apostolic call, this commission to be sent out, has been uh, directed by Jesus. And if you think back through Paul's history, it really is quite extraordinary that Jesus would look at this guy in particular and say, I want you on my side, rather than saying, you are in opposition to me, I think I will put you to death. You say, what are you talking about? Well, if you were to look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 16 very quickly, you would find an autobiographic description from Paul about what he was prior to this apostolic call. He says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly, listen to these three words, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He goes on from that jarring description of his previous life to say, but I received mercy. I didn't deserve mercy what I received, I received mercy. And then goes on to say that 
in me, as the foremost example, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you know one of the remarkable things about the Apostle Paul, you can never lose sight of this, even though you might enter Romans and some of you are mature believers and you've read the Bible from cover to cover and, and, and Paul is one that we admire and respect and we love, but you can't forget his past. Because even all of these letters that he wrote, all of those sermons that he preached in his day, all the churches that he planted, point us to the God who rescued him when he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And if God would have mercy for a guy who's that morally corrupted, then there's hope for you and me. Don't ever think that you may have sinned your way beyond the capacity of God to forgive you. One of the great passages in Romans that we'll come to is Paul's description that where sin abounded, grace superabounded. This is part of the gospel. So he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle. Now look at number three. He is set apart for the gospel of God. And this is the first time we encounter that term, the gospel, and we'll unpack it a little more fully, but it's used multiple times in this letter. Gospel simply means good news, and we'll look at that in just a moment, but when he says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God, he means that God, in a sense, marked it all, marked me out, marked out the boundaries of my existence, marked out the boundaries of my ministry, established me in this particular thing. So this is a man who has personally experienced the powerful presence the powerful transformation and the powerful commission of Christ himself. I wonder if you have a similar story. If you could look back over your days as Paul here as an older man. This, this letter was written, we think, in the year 56 or 57 AD. And he was probably saved 20 years earlier and saved as an adult. So in the later years of his life, he looks back and sees that moment where he realizes he should, have he should have received God's judgment and condemnation and wrath, but he received mercy. And then as Jesus graciously owned him, called him, and set him apart, he looks back with gratitude. Is that similar to your testimony? Can you look back on a time and say, I was without Christ and what a, what a wreck my life was? dominated by sin, dominated by fear, dominated by anxiety, dominated by anger, whatever it might be that described you prior to Christ, can you look to the present and say, but I'm a changed person? This is the power of God. And that brings us to the second question, what is the gospel? As I mentioned, Paul uses this term multiple times in the, in, in the letter to the Romans, 11 times to be specific, and four of those occur right here in the first chapter, the first 16 verses that we're gonna look at this morning. Now again, we're gonna just follow Paul's particular description. There's so much more that he's gonna tell us about the content of the gospel, if you will, but the one thing I want you to be captured with this morning is exactly where Paul takes us initially. First of all, notice this as we come uh, into his description, verses one and then two and then three, he describes it as the gospel of God. It, it is God's possession. He's not actually saying in this little phrase, it's a gospel about God. No, he's saying it's God's gospel. And, and by that, it would be no man's gospel. It's no church's gospel. We may gladly own it and say this is, this is the gospel we believe, but this is God's possession. Second of all, it is the ancient promise of God. Look at verse two. The gospel which he promised or announced beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. A chunk of the New Testament had been written at this point. All of the Old Testament was completed at this point, and you would say, well, where was the gospel first preached? Genesis 3.15. That's where the promise of God to Adam and Eve, who had rebelled against him and plunged the world into sin, and God's curse rests upon them, but then he promises that he will send the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman, and he will be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And we refer to Genesis 3.15 as the first gospel. 
Oh, it continues all through the Old Testament. One other place I would send you would be Paul's description of how the scripture, this is what he says in Galatians 3 verse eight, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is prior to Moses and the great deliverance from Egypt and Exodus and, and all of the tabernacle and then the temple under Solomon. It's before all of that, but here's God preaching the gospel to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul is well aware of the fact that this gospel, which is God's possession, goes back to ancient days. There has uh, there has always been a consistency in this message as old, old as it is. But notice this in the third place. It is a message about Jesus. A specific message about Jesus. Verse three says concerning his son. Now, Paul's gonna give us several things about Jesus that we need to be setting our hearts on. So let's ask a third question here, but really a subheading under the gospel, or what is the gospel? First of all, did you notice who was descended from David according to the flesh? Well, this is the incarnate son, and the incarnation is a miraculous thing. We looked at that during the Advent season, looking at some of those great passages that Jesus did not enter the world the same way you and I did, really. No, the Holy Spirit conceived that child miraculously, through Mary, yes, he entered the, the world through the womb of a mother the way you and I did, but his conception was not like any other human beings has been. And the gospel is the good news of the eternal God, the Son, becoming man. Number two, he is the resurrected Son. Look at verse four. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We sang just a little bit ago that glorious, well actually there were several texts that alluded to the resurrection, but that last song, oh praise the name of this one who was resurrected miraculously by the power of the Spirit. It sets him in a category all of his own, and though the rest of us anticipate a resurrection like unto his, he was brought from the grave as the powerful declaration, Paul is saying here, that he is the only begotten Son of God. Number three, you come to his name and two titles, Jesus Christ our Lord, he is the exalted Son. Now remember, Jesus is the given name. Again, we looked at this during our Advent series. Jesus is the name that means Yahweh or Jehovah saves us from our sins. And even if that were the only name that we knew or the only title that referred to Jesus, it would be enough to rejoice and write great hymns and sing great songs of praise to him and believe. But there are two other parts that are added, two titles, if you will, and Christ is his title as the anointed one, specifically from the Old Testament days, the promised one who would come. Jesus is God's Messiah. That's another way to understand Jesus the Christ. But then Paul uses the title Lord, and this identifies him as the, the Yahweh or Jehovah of the Old Testament, and furthermore, it identifies him as the supremely powerful one, the sovereign one, if you will. So he's the exalted son, and he exists at this moment in a category all of his own, and the gospel is the good news about this son. He's the exalted son, and finally he is the sovereign son. Verse five says, through whom, that is through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And we'll talk more in weeks to come about the significance of this faith. But look at the next phrase, for the sake of his name among all the nations. The intention is that the fame and reputation of the sovereign son would be known globally, not simply in Israel, not simply in a Jewish sect like Paul was a part of at one particular time in his life, but globally by Jew and Gentile alike, throughout the Roman Empire and throughout the world. Verse six says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's an echo of how Paul described himself in verse one as the bond servant of Jesus Christ. There's possession and ownership. And this is the second time in chapter one that Paul has used this particular term, called 
to something. And when God calls us to belong, it is, it is clearly understood that he is not issuing a, a polite request saying, if you're willing, would you? No, it's a command. It's a command of the sovereign ruler of the universe. And refusal is not really an option. And for those who do refuse this call to belong to Jesus, there actually is an extraordinary, extraordinary price to be paid. The gospel is not only a powerful work of God to faith and obedience, it is a call to relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is what is missing in so many religions of the world. They will lay out a path of morality. They will lay out a path of self-improvement. They might even lay out a pathway to eternal life or some kind of hope in this life, but none others, none, none other can call people into the kind of relationship that this gospel, this good news, is extending to people like us today. So Paul says, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Look at verse seven. To all those in Rome who are first loved by God and number two, called to be saints. I just wanna pause for a moment and, and invite you to savor the little phrase, loved by God. A, another English translation, some of you may be looking at it, uses the words beloved of God. Dearly loved, ones who are cherished, Ones who are actually treated with partiality because of the family relationship in this thing. Uh, we have family in town. We're grateful for Kristen's sister and brother-in-law and others. won't name them all right now. We've had a great few days. They're flying out right after the service today. But we did a little shopping yesterday, and there were some great sales at the outlets. Um, I don't know if you ever do that kind of thing. I'm always looking for a good deal. And we were shopping in one particular store, and Kristen came up, and she said, hey, could we just get a little something here, this item for Haley? And we were talking about that, and I said, what about Kate? She said, yeah. And so we bought a couple of items for our daughters. And, you know, I was thinking early this morning, I, I didn't buy anything for anyone else. I mean, my nephews and nieces that I truly do love and cherish to a certain extent, it didn't even cross my mind that I would pay for their merchandise yesterday. My sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, love them, but not in that way. I showed partiality to Haley and Kate because of that really deep, personal, intimate bond. I mean, we share DNA. And you know, when God saves you and calls you into relationship and then you belong to his son, he loves you and cherishes you in a way where you are the recipient of his partiality, unapologetically. Some of you can't fathom a relationship with God in heaven uh, of that intimacy, of that personal nature. But here is a little simple statement that we dare not run by at this particular moment because when God extends this good news of who Jesus is and what he has done to rescue sinners like us, it includes being brought into this most personal relationship loved by God. And then the third time he uses the term called occurs in the next phrase, called to be saints. So in the same way that the other two calls, Paul's call to apostleship and our call to belong to Jesus, so now Paul runs with this call to be saints. That is, there, there is a, a, a command issued to say you really must be holy ones. And I've got to tell you, beloved, I look at my own soul sometimes and the, the thoughts that I have, the sinful motivations that emerge and sinful responses and all that, I think I'll never be a saint but Romans, one of the things it will do is to lay out for us the reality of how God works in real time, in the hearts and minds of real broken people like us to grow us, to change us, to transform us to where we too would look back and say, I once was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I've received mercy and I'm no longer those things, but I'm actually useful to the God of this gospel. It is incredible, thank you. What a power this is. And Paul had experienced it personally and now his longing is to preach the gospel to these dear Romans that they might know they have been called to true holiness and righteousness and that they might know the right pathway to it. 
So the gospel, if we are to summarize, is simply the good news about what God the Father is doing through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit to call sinners to the obedience of faith in order that they might enter a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that radically transforms them from slaves of sin to servants of Christ, from sinners to saints. There's a one-sentence summary. Some of you are a little too efficient in life. They're like, great, close in prayer. Thanks for the series. Oh, there's so much more. I thought of another analogy that might be helpful. I feel like, I feel like we're, we, we just parked the car and we've got out, uh, gotten out of the vehicles and we're getting ready to, to start this magnificent trek into the wilderness. And you can glimpse just a little bit of the views that await us from the parking lot. Thinking back a couple of years ago, you know, we've only lived in Utah just under four years right now, and so I really haven't been able to venture into uh, the, the outdoors the way I want to. But one of the first backpacking trips uh, we made, uh, Kristen actually went along. This was a, a great moment, and uh, enjoyed it with Stephen and Jessica. And, and Granddaddy National Forest or something like that, Granddaddy something or other. And uh, I mean, what a journey. And, and you could get a sense, even as you were driving up the mountain to the trailhead of, of what awaited us, but until you were actually deep in the woods and seeing it, smelling it, hearing it, and just experiencing it, you could not fathom what was there. And, and we're just glimpsing some things right now. There's so much more that lies ahead. We're actually gonna skip over the salutation of grace and peace and come back to that at the Lord's table in just a few minutes. And, and that brings us then to uh, the next portion though. And, and really there's a, a question before us now. Why is Paul so eager to get to Rome? Well, he's grateful for the Romans. Verse eight, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That is that apparently what God was doing in the church at Rome uh, was well known throughout that region. This is evidence of the power of God as it, as it transforms people changes them and the reputation goes out look at what God has done have you heard of what God is doing so he is grateful for the Romans he's eager to meet the Romans verse 9 tells us eager to serve them I'm going to just skip across the surface of these things and then notice in verse 11 he's eager to preach the gospel to the Romans and some might say but don't they already know it I mean he's just said their the reputation of their faith is known worldwide which would He's, he's using a very common term in that day, and it's not like, you know, from North Pole to South Pole, from, you know, the Far East to the Far West. It, no, he's just saying in, in the known region, it's well known. But what, why would he be eager to preach the gospel? Well, verse 11 gives us the first clue. He wants to strengthen them with some spiritual gift, and then verse 12, for mutual encouragement. But one of the things we'll come to, and those of you who are here for the series in the fall and the conscience would remember we spent some time in Romans 14 and 15. And remember how this church is divided over some really significant issues? How are we gonna worship? What will be our method? Will, will we actually abstain from food that has been offered to idols? Or you know, are, we, are we free to go get a good deal on meat? Well, nobody's talking about going to the temple of the idols to worship the idols, but it, it's good meat. All kinds of issues that they were struggling with and wrestling with, and, and you know what gives clarity to all of those points of division and concern the gospel, being brought back again and again to who God is and what he is doing through his son by the power of his Holy Spirit to change us. He says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that. So here's a second use of that term. First one was in verse 11, I long to see you that, that's the shortened version of the same term, in order that I may impart to you a spiritual gift. Now he says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's looking for spiritual growth within the context of that church, but it seems likely that he's saying, I'm sure there are more people in Rome who need to hear the gospel be converted and brought into the church. But let's return to this important question, what is the gospel? So far we've, we've seen the divine possession of God, the ancient promise of God, the specific message about God, but now we come to verse 16, which many say this is the theme, and they include 17 with it, but we just don't have time for that today. The gospel is the power of God 
for salvation. Now look at verse 16 with me and let's consider why Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's saying I'm not characterized by feelings of shame or guilt or embarrassment or even remorse. That's a remarkable statement to me because at this point in his life, the gospel and the ministry of of his apostleship has cost him dearly. Say, what do you mean? Oh, if you read the life and ministry of Paul as it's recorded in Acts, as he makes reference to it in other letters like 2 Corinthians, you begin to realize that this is a man who has faced rejection from Jew and Gentile alike, from powerful leaders of a religious kind even down to the most common individual. Think of the betrayal that he has experienced for the sake of the gospel by partners in ministry like Demas, who once walked with him, served with him, traveled with him, but then Demas loved the present world and turned his back on the gospel and Paul. Think of the opposition of enemies like Alexander the coppersmith, and while Paul doesn't give great details, he says, he has done me much harm. Or the continual battle with false teachers that appears in every single one of the letters that he writes. Heretics like Hymenaeus and Alexander who made his life hard and difficult. Who likely stole away some of those that he was seeking to evangelize and disciple. Think of the public humiliations of those moments where he was lashed as he described. With a a, a brutal, a brutal and painful whipping. The stonings that he endured, those are recorded in places like 2 Corinthians 3, verses 23 to 27. Humanly speaking, there is reason for him to actually be ashamed, but he is not. And I think how often I have experienced shame for the gospel in my lifetime. Felt an embarrassment that somebody might realize I am a true follower of Christ, which means I don't actually believe there are multiple ways to heaven. Ashamed that they might press me into a corner and say, so what do you believe about sexuality? And I might have to admit that I believe what the Bible teaches. One man, one woman in a covenant relationship of marriage, that's it. Ashamed that I might be thought illiterate, ignorant, bigoted, all kinds of things, and you feel many of these things too. But Paul says straight up, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know, there have always been marks of disgrace and stigma attached to the gospel, but there are two reasons before us in the text right now that we need never feel ashamed, embarrassed, or even uncertain. And we'll only have time to dig into the first one this morning, but the second one is coming, and it is important for us to set our hearts on it. These two reasons that Paul gives for his not being ashamed must be our same reasons. They are powerful in their capacity to secure us, and they are powerful in their capacity to motivate us. And what is the first one? Well, here it is. The gospel is the power of God, the achieving power of God. You see, what Paul is saying is, is it's not just good news that you kind of file away in your brain, you learn these facts, this is who Jesus is, this is what he did, it, it will include that, but, but the gospel is actually God at work. Now I wanna cast this in its immediate context because I think this is really helpful and I believe it will be really encouraging for us at this moment in history because it's not the only power that people were aware of in Paul's day. And the gospel is not the only power that we might also have an awareness of our, in our day. And so actually, I I want to set before you not only the power of God, but I want you to first of all think about the power of Rome. Paul personally was a Roman citizen. Rome dominated the known world in that particular day. One pastor and author has said of Rome, of all nations, of all empires that had arisen over the years, Rome was the empire of power. It had devastated the entire world. 200 years before Christ was born, at at the outset of the Roman Empire, the Greek historian Polybius explained what he believed to be the center of Rome's power. And listen to this, because you might be tempted to think it's just kind of a, you know, they, they just, they got a big enough army, and then, you know, they had a couple of Caesars who had a really big vision, and so they just, they just decided one day, oh, let's go conquer the world. No, there's something more significant as to what lies in their hearts. 
And the Greek historian Polybius wrote, the quality in which the Roman commonwealth is most distinctly superior is, in my opinion, the nature of their religious convictions. And he's not simply talking about Roman gods, although that would be a part of it, but actually it becomes kind of this politically driven religion, uh, a religious state, if you will, where the loyalties of the people come to their great leaders, come into the Senate, come into their democratic assemblies, come into their economy, come into their ambition, and they really are a religious people for Rome. The historian Everett Ferguson wrote, and, and he's one of our contemporaries, Roman power was due to Roman piety. He goes on to describe how Rome Rome successfully absorbed alien populations, taking borrowed things from other cultures and making them their own. And then he writes, there was a prominent feeling that what Rome did was rooted in the eternal order of right. They start to look at what they're doing politically and militarily and economically as if they're somehow a, a divinely given right. It's easy to think of Rome as being ruled simply by powerful emperors and strong military, but it actually was a constitutional system, not exactly like ours, but many similarities. And it was was a government that really did initially seek to balance the power between the emperor, the senate, and the democratic assemblies. We cannot underestimate the power of the military, though, because they did the hard and dirty work of the empire. They conquered vast areas and brought them under Roman rule. They, uh, again, I'm quoting Ferguson from his work, Backgrounds to Early uh, Christianity. The, The army safeguarded Roman peace and made possible social and cultural developments, provided mobility both geographically and socially for its members. The army was important in the spread of various Eastern religions and even observed its own official religious ceremonies. Are you getting a little feel Uh, for what Polybius was talking about when he referred to the religion of the state. And to possess Roman citizenship meant great privileges, the right to vote, freedom from degrading forms of punishment, the right of appeal to Rome. Even if you lived in some outlying country that had been conquered, if you were a Roman citizen, you would not ultimately have to submit to the local authority, the local jurisdiction, because you knew that your citizenship took you all the way back to Caesar himself. And Paul actually makes that appeal. It's recorded in the book of Acts. So there are great advantages to being a Roman citizen. There's power that can be accessed there, but that's not the kind of power that Paul is living for or preaching and proclaiming. Roman citizen though he is. For here's the problem. As powerful as Rome was, it could never offer anything more than a jurisdiction of unrighteousness. And by the time that Paul writes this letter to the Romans in 56 or 57 AD, the government of Rome has become profoundly corrupt. And between Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor at the time of Christ's birth, four more Caesars, three have come and gone, and one has assumed power as a 16-year-old boy. He will not live past the age of 30, and you know him well as Nero. What does it tell you about this particular power, Rome's power, that it can't even keep its emperor firmly seated on its own throne? Political extortion, sexual immorality, and economic exploitation are the hallmarks of Roman power in 56 AD. It is a culture that entertains itself with bloodlust and vulgarity. And the most popular theatrical performances, again I'm quoting the historian Ferguson, were the farces and mimes parodies of everyday life, much of the popular amusement acting descended to the vulgar and sexual to get its laughs. Are we sure we're not talking about the United States of America in 2021? Rome has become its own religion and Nero is its Lord and God. Another historian from those early centuries captured some of that emperor worship recording some of the common phrases used attributed to Nero. One of the quotations he includes is the, 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 the greetings that people would often give to Nero as our Apollo, 
a Roman god, then swearing allegiance to him. In another place, O divine voice, Nero, divine voice, blessed are they that hear you. And then finally, this famous inscription from a Boeotian uh, archaeological find, Nero was called straight up, this is the quotation, Lord of the whole world. There's power. Power that as a Roman citizen you could access. And citizenship was available not just to those native-born sons, but there were ways to buy your way into it, to serve your way into it. And there, there are some things to consider. But within a couple of hundred years when the Roman Empire actually fell, it should not surprise any of us to see how it was tracking. And no wonder the, that Tacitus, the Roman politician and historian of the late first century and early second century AD, summarized the power of Rome with these words, they have plundered the world, stripping naked the land in their hunger. They are driven by greed if their enemy be rich, by ambition if the enemy is poor. They ravage, they slaughter, they seize by false pretenses, and all of this they hail as the construction of empire. And when in their wake nothing remains but a desert, they call it peace. It's power, but what an empty delusion. The frustration many of us feel at this moment in our own nation's history is that this is becoming a wasteland. But could it conclude any other way? I know in God we trust is printed on our money and inscribed in some key government buildings, but we left God a long time ago. And you can even argue that this was never actually a truly Christian nation from top to bottom and side to side. God has been very kind and, and merciful, and as we sing in one of our you know, beloved uh, you know, national hymns, God shed his grace on thee. Yes, he certainly has. But if you are putting your faith and hope in the power of this nation, you are not only headed for profound disappointment, but you personally will experience a wasteland in your soul. Rome bragged about its peace. It was anything but. On the other side, and this is even part of Paul's personal testimony, there's the power of religion. To hear Paul describe himself early as a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent would hardly cause us to conclude that was a religious man, but that's exactly what he was. Listen to his testimony from Philippians 3. He's speaking to people who actually want to earn their way to God by their obedience and law-keeping of the Old Testament and all kinds of things with it. And so Paul's going after it hard, but he, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh that is in my works. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now listen to this religious pedigree. Circumcised on the eighth day. That simply means from birth. Paul was at the epicenter of Jewish religion and Old Testament law. Of the people of Israel, he says. That's the nation chosen by God. It's a way of saying I've not only got the right religion, but the, you know, the primo ethnicity. The third thing he says of the tribe of Benjamin, that just means he's well aware of his ancestry, which tells you his roots are deep in Judaism. A Hebrew of Hebrews. We're not sure exactly, but you think back through what he had experienced. He had been educated under Gamaliel, one of the premier teachers, not just of the day, but in Israel's history. In, and he would have been educated in Hebrew law and nationalism. I mean, this, this is an elitely educated man. Then he goes on to say, as to the law, a Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees were the strictest religious sect of Jews. They had an unparalleled commitment to the Mosaic law, to the oral tradition that had been handed down to them generation by generation. They were among the most conservative theologically. And the term Pharisee means very specifically to separate or to distinguish oneself. And so they kept themselves apart from both socially and theologically corrupt individuals and groups. And this is the group, if you'll recall, that wore little boxes with scriptures tucked in them on their foreheads and also on their arms. Uh, they, were so, they were so committed to following, uh, applying Old Testament law and in a 
in a way that God never really intended. But along with those copies of Moses' writings attached to their foreheads, they tenaciously proselytized others, and in modern terms, that's like saying they, they took their mission trips and they tithed down to their spice racks. Some of you brought an offering today and may even follow a little bit of a a tithing system in the Old Testament sense or the scriptural sense, I should say, and it's fine if you do, but we actually believe God has opened it up and given us more freedom as 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 give, but I dare say, I mean, I have yet to hear that we counted the offering and somebody dropped in 10% of their dill or their mint or their cumin, but that's exactly what Jesus said these Pharisees did. And then he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Isn't it interesting that it's actually his zeal and self-righteousness, the self-righteousness of religion that turned him into a violent man. And the final phrase in Philippians 3, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. There is a parallel to Rome's power and this religious power. It's different though. But it does share a similarity in that it also can achieve something, but it never leads to life. For this religious power of self-righteousness actually bankrupts its adherents. And it too produces a wasteland, but this wasteland would look as, as opposed to the immorality and perversion of Rome. This wasteland looks like a, a behavior modification. We all look like we're doing well, but underneath we are dying. Underneath there is an angry pride that continually compares and feels a sense of jealousy and frustration when somebody else gets an advantage or moves up the ladder. It it has been described even in this valley as a toxic perfectionism. And so we're perpetually competing. And if you're gonna stay at the top of this religious heap, you've gotta be more zealous, more active, more aggressive. And that's exactly where Paul was. And he knows that not only the power of Roman citizenship ultimately leads one to a wasteland, he also came to the place where he recognized the power of his religion was leading him to death. Some of you are very religious, but you live in a wasteland. And your religion gives you no grace, offers you no hope. There's no real genuine forgiveness. Your religion is much like the culture of today where you step out of line, you just get canceled. But the power of God works something very differently. Go back to verse 16. What a contrast the power of God is to the power of Rome and the power of religion. Paul is declaring that this good news, which is strictly about his son, who is the incarnate, resurrected son, as we said, but this good news is that there is a God in heaven who actually is working now to save. That little word save, which we will encounter at multiple points in the study, speaks of deliverance. You know, Rome exerts its power to subjugate nations and peoples. Religion of Paul's kind and Phariseeism and Judaism exerted its power to ultimately control people and own their lives and own their practice, but God exerts his power to rescue people like us from sin, from the wastelands of immorality and the wastelands of moralism but he also rescues to save from the coming judgment. And that will save for next week. Look at what Paul says, and this is the last thought for the morning, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh, there's gonna be so much made about faith. But let's get this straight at the outset. Faith is like a key that unlocks the vault of gospel treasures. The key is not the treasure itself. Faith is not the ultimate thing that God seeks to to work in you. Ultimately, he wants Christ dwelling in you. His life, his death, his resurrection, all the power, all the benefits, all the blessings that come with Christ, but it is dependent upon your active faith. And Paul makes that appeal here at the outset. And he has watched the power of God and that 
work through faith to bring people face to face with the living Christ. And this treasure is offered freely to everyone who believes. And when Paul is writing this, he's looking back and the stories that he could tell about the achieving power of God to save both Jew and Gentile. He would tell you stories such as are recorded in the book of Acts where Gentiles in large numbers at a place called Antioch Pisidia heard the gospel and believed and were transformed. Both Jews and Greeks at Iconium, a crippled man in the city of Lystra, the many disciples of Derby, a businesswoman named Lydia, and a fortune-telling slave girl and, a, and the Philippian jailer are among those first three converts who would have come into a church. Who would have ever put a, a wealthy businessman, a slave girl who was a fortune teller, and a jailer in the same assembly? God would, and he does from the Areopagus of Athens to the synagogues of Corinth, from the hall of Felix to his house arrest in Rome, Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and watches the power of God continue to convert Jews and Gentiles alike, young and old, wealthy and impoverished. And the last thing we read about Paul is recorded in Acts 28, verses 28 to 31. Therefore, let it be known to you, Paul is saying, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. I pause there and I think, Paul, are you forgetting all the riots that erupted and the stonings and the whippings and the sufferings and the humiliation and all the people who rejected you? And I'm sure he would say, no, Danny, I'm not forgetting one of those things, but those things are, are swallowed up in this greater power of God to save I've seen it. I know it. They will listen. And then Acts ends. I mean, it, it's actually not a great ending to a story. Are you familiar with the ending of Acts? Here it comes. I mean, we, we should wait for this glorious climactic moment, right? I mean, even if Paul is going to be martyred, which he is, I mean, shouldn't we hear that? And God took him into the presence of himself. And so Paul ever lives with the Lord. Nope, here it is. Paul lived there, that is house arrest in Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Every time I read that, I, I go, I mean, that's good, but there's more. And you know what it reminds us of? Even the book of Acts is not about Peter, Paul, any of the other apostles or early disciples. It's about God working. It's about the gospel. And your life and my life must be about the same work of God. Have you believed on Jesus Christ in this way? Is your faith like Paul's in God or are you centering it somewhere else? There's no Roman Empire today but there's an American dream that has captured many people, and you know what? It's crumbling from the inside right now. That is the kindness of God to break the delusions that many of us have lived with that equate prosperity in America with God's blessing, and the two are not the same. Some of you are deeply embedded and even committed to a religion of some kind, but Christ is not at the core. It's all about your works, your progression, your faith, your status. The gospel is not the good news of how you can become a God or how you can earn eternal life. The gospel is the good news about what God the Father is doing through God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit to rescue sinful people. And as we'll get into next week and actually bring them a gift of righteousness that they can never earn for themselves. And so we begin our journey through Romans. A journey that I trust will be amazing and know it will be.